Patients. Galatians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in your seat back pocket. And Galatians is on page 1154. 1154. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Not out of respect for the one who reads, but out of reverence for the one who speaks to us now by his word. This is Galatians 1, 1 through 9, and I'm reading this from the English Standard Version. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace today. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace into people who know you better and love you more dearly and follow you more closely each and every day. We ask this in the name of Jesus, confident that you hear our prayers for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. I know I opened last week uh, with a quote from the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, uh, this little fictional book, um, but only barely, where Screwtape, this older devil, trains the young devil Wormwood in the art and craft of temptation. Uh, but I came across another screw tape quote from PCA pastor Sean Michael Lewis, and it's just too good not to share with you as we begin our time in Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is from letter 25. My dear Wormwood, writes screw tape, the real trouble about the setting your patient, the human, is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course. But the bond between them remains mere Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. Let's think about that for a minute. Christianity and. What could that mean? As you consider your walk with Jesus, as you think about what it means to follow Christ, and you think about the message of Christianity that we proclaim here at HPC, is it mere Christianity, or is it Christianity and? Uh, some examples from Screwtape might help us answer the question. You know, he says, or you know, he says, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. 
Christianity and psychical research. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. Their horror of the same old thing. That's so insightful, isn't it? Their horror of the same old thing. So often we lapse uh, into what Lewis calls, um, we lapse from what Lewis calls mere Christianity into what we could call Christianity and. And we're going to think about a few more Christianity ands together as we get into the passage. Maybe some Christianity ands are already popping into your head. But if I had to guess, you're thinking about the Christianity ands that that person over there has, and probably not your own blind spots in the faith. It's funny how that works. So that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to dig into Galatians with you. Uh, I want to press home the way that Paul calls the Galatians away from Christianity and and back to the simple and saving exclusivity of Christ and his grace received by faith alone. We're going to begin today looking at Galatians 1, 1 through 9, and I've called this sermon, How to Shock an Apostle. I'll explain why that's the title as we go along, but we'll organize our thoughts under three main headings. First, Paul's mission. Second, Paul's message. And finally, Paul's alarm. His mission, his message, and his alarm So first then, look with me at verse 1, and we'll consider Paul's mission. Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Here we see the origin of Paul's mission. What we'll see as we unpack this is that no one was more shocked than was Paul to be called by Jesus to be an apostle. First off, I don't want to take it for granted if you're here this morning that you know who Paul is. So as we jump into Galatians, I'm thrilled to introduce you uh, to this man. If you're going to understand why Paul is so upset and dumbfounded over what the Galatians are doing, over the problem in Galatia, you need to understand a little bit about Paul. We'll get much more into Paul's calling next week. Uh, It's a major section in Galatians because he's defending his apostleship against his detractors. But just a brief introduction this morning to the man who God called as one untimely born to be the apostle of grace to the Gentiles. That is to non-Jewish people like most of us here this morning. This is relevant to us here because if God called you to himself and you're someone who is not from a Jewish background, then Paul's story is a part of your story. This is part of our family history, those of us who are Gentile believers in Jesus. I love how Paul Barnett puts it in his book, Paul, Missionary of Jesus. He says, Who was this man whose mission changed the face of Christianity and the course of world history? Paul was born a Jew, born in Tarsus in the diaspora, the Greek nations among which the Jews were scattered during the time of the Roman Empire. Uh, He came as a youth or a young man to live in Roman-occupied Jerusalem, where he became a Pharisee through his membership in the school of the noted Rabbi Gamaliel. His letters, written later, reveal an assured fluency in Koine Greek and a master of the Greek Bible, the Septuagint. So Paul is a Greek-born Jewish Pharisee and a Roman citizen with an impressive resume and command of the Greek language. And later, he becomes the most prolific 
missionary in the early church and his calling as the apostle to the Gentiles. So he's not tinker, tailor, soldier, spy. He's Greek, Roman, Jewish, Christian. And if you ask Paul, wait a minute, Greek, Roman, Jewish, Christian? If you asked him that, he would say, believe me, no one is more surprised than I am. No one could have been more shocked than Paul to be called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was the sworn enemy and persecutor of the early church. You may have heard that Saul is what Paul was called uh, when before his conversion he was known as Saul of Tarsus, this Pharisee who stood by as Stephen, the first Christian martyr recorded in scripture, was stoned to death. But then he was miraculously converted when Jesus appears to him on the way to Damascus on his way to persecute the church there. And then he starts going by Paul, maybe like his Christian name as opposed to Saul. That's actually only partly right. Uh, Two names were really common for the Jews of that day. Um, Hebrew names and, say, a Babylonian name back in the the time of the Babylonian captivity, that was common. Or during Paul's day, a Hebrew name and a a Latin name under Roman occupation. Uh, John Brown makes a really interesting observation about this in his commentary, and I think he's onto something really beautiful. He says, Paul seems to have used his Roman name exclusively after his solemn separation to the ministry of the Gentiles. His object probably was to show that he had divested himself of all Jewish prejudices and to secure to himself that respect and attention which Gentiles were more likely to show to one who bore a name which seemed to imply that he bore it as a Roman citizen. There's some wisdom here, I think, for us as we reach out to the world around us. Uh, When I was a speaker for a radio program reaching Cuba, I didn't go by Dan Warren because no one can pronounce Dan Warren in Cuba. I went by Pastor Daniel. I didn't want my name itself to be a barrier to people receiving the gospel message. So I think we should learn in all many different kinds of ways in our lives to become, as Paul said, all things to all people, that by all means we might save some. 1 Corinthians 9.22. After all, Paul is the apostle, right, who declares in Ephesians 2 that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is broken down in Christ. So taking the name Paul was probably to underscore this wonderful truth of the gospel. It's not a division between Jew and Gentile, but one new man in Christ. And it helps his efforts as he reaches out to this Gentile context. Well, we'll look more about Paul and the details about his calling next week. Uh, But that's Paul in a nutshell. Let's focus now on what Paul says about his apostleship here at the opening of Galatians. Because it's important... Uh, to his argument, and it establishes the authority that he has to write to this church, this church that's so confused and troubled about the nature of the gospel. Look again with me at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. We see two things, I think, here about Paul's apostleship. Uh, He states it right up front in defense of his authority as one sent by God with the true gospel of God's grace. We see two things. First, we see what it's not. This is what Paul's apostleship is not. It's not from men, nor through man. What does that mean? What does that mean? I think it sets Paul's ministry apart, first of all, from illegitimate ministers. People who simply set up shop with a message and no legitimate call from God. The self-appointed social media influencers of Paul's day, if there was such a thing not ministers with a message given to them from God. 
But not only does it distinguish Paul from these illegitimate ministers, it also distinguishes Paul from legitimate ministers of the gospel who have their calling through men. They're called by God through ordination and the laying on of hands for the ministry of word and sacrament. So Paul is no self-appointed huckster of a message that he's come up with himself. And he's also more than just a minister of the gospel. He's not just a pastor. He's actually an apostle. And that takes us from what Paul's apostleship isn't to what it is. He's told, what, he's told us what it isn't. Now look at what it is. Uh, he isn't merely saying, I'm a legitimate pastor like Timothy or Titus. It's far more than that. He is an apostle called directly by Jesus, given the message of grace directly from him. No matter what the false teachers seducing the Galatians with their false gospel may have said, Paul is an apostle, a sent one, one with a message through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Why does he include that? Who raised him from the dead? I can't help but wonder if that last line about the resurrection is Paul's response to people saying, well, Paul, uh, Jesus died long before you ever showed up saying you were an apostle. But the risen Christ had, in fact, appeared to Paul. He tells the story to King Agrippa in Acts 26. Paul says, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul received this apostleship from Jesus. He's on his way to Damascus to kill Christians, throw them in prison, see them stoned, and he is knocked off his horse by the glory of the resurrected Christ, calling him as the first missionary to our people, to the Gentiles. Could anyone have been more shocked than was Paul to have been called by Jesus himself as an apostle? Let me say this, uh, Paul's conversion as an apostle or his calling and conversion uh, isn't really a model for what we may necessarily experience uh, when we're converted though some of us maybe God got a hold of in a radical way like this, knocking us off our high horse, blinding us with his grace and his mercy. But can any of us here say, sure, I'm not surprised that the Lord called me. I'm pretty great after all. I hope none, none of us think that, and no one says that here. When someone asks you, wait a minute, you're a Christian? You should say, believe me, no one is more shocked than I am. This is God's amazing grace to people who don't deserve it. So this is Paul's mission, the origin of his mission. It's, it's of divine origin. He is an apostle called by Jesus with the authority to proclaim the gospel. And he has the authority to protect the integrity of the message of God's grace in this letter. Paul's concern, as are all of his fellow gospel laborers. He says, those who are with me are writing this. This is a message that must be maintained 
because souls are at stake. And that takes us to the second point, and it's this. Look with me now at verses 3 to 5. Verses 3 to 5, we'll consider Paul's message. In verses 3 to 5, we read, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we've seen the origin of Paul's mission. Now we see the content of Paul's message, the content of his message. I think we can say that Paul is as shocked as anyone about the content of this message. No one could have been more shocked than was Paul, this former Pharisee, now apostle, by the gospel of God's free grace apart from the law. We could say here that Paul gives us the purpose of God's plan and provision for the problem of our sin. The purpose of God's plan and provision for the problem of our sin. What is the good news? And why did God give it? Why have we received this great gift anyway? It's all right here. We're going to unpack this as we go uh, through our series in Galatians. So I'll just be brief here. But think with me for just a moment, if you will, about that phrase that tells us Jesus gave himself for our sins. Jesus gave himself for your sins. The reformer Martin Luther, quite a sinner himself, as he freely admits, he captures the force of this so well. Luther says, Our sins are so great, so infinite and invincible, that the whole world could not make satisfaction for even one of them. Certainly the greatness of the ransom, namely the blood of the Son of God, makes it sufficiently clear that we can neither make satisfaction for our sin nor prevail over it. The force and power of sin is amplified by these words, who gave himself for our sins. We are indifferent, and we regard sin as something trivial, a mere nothing. Although it brings with it the sting and remorse of conscience, still we suppose that it has so little weight and force that some little work or merit of ours will remove it. But we should note here the infinite greatness of the price paid for it. He gave himself for our sins. Then it will be evident that its power is so great that it could not be removed by any means except then that the Son of God be given for it. Who gave himself for our sins. Who gave himself for your sins. Let me ask you this morning, have you come to grips with the force and the power of sin? Luther says it's amplified when we hear those words. Jesus gave himself for your sins. Has the gravity of your sin struck you? All of the many ways in which you fail to follow God's law and the ways that you sin against God's law. Your sin is an unfathomably heavy burden. It's an insurmountable problem that you can't fix. But God has provided a way for you to be made right with him. Jesus gave himself for your sins. Why? Why did he do it? Why is this God's plan from all eternity? It's to deliver us, Paul says, from this present evil age. And that's more, friends, than just being taken out of a world where there's a lot of sin and finally going to heaven where there's not sin. No, this is eschatology. This is being taken from the present age of sin to the age to come. It has to do with God's end time redemption because of the Spirit making us alive when we believe in Jesus, making us new creations because of our faith in Christ, we are partakers of the age to come right now, today, in this place. This place is where God has begun his work of making all things new, starting with our hearts, 
starting with his people, making us new creations in Christ. The age to come has broken into the here and now as we have placed our faith in Christ. We have gone from living according to the flesh to being made alive by the Spirit. So when you flee from sin to Jesus by faith, and when you, you, what you were according to the flesh is gone, and now you are new in Jesus, you're made alive by the Spirit, and that is God's plan to redeem His people. That's mere gospel. It's what it's all about. It's the gospel. That's the only gospel there is, which will be Paul's point. But the moment it becomes gospel and, it ceases to be gospel. To quote the Prince of English Puritanism, William Perkins, he said, Grace admits no partner or fellow. Grace must be freely given every way, or it is no way grace. Let's put it another way. Let's just think, he, think of him as Bill Perkins, all right? You're meeting up with Bill Perkins, and he's sitting across the table from you at Molly's over on Main Street. What would Bill tell you about grace? He would say, can you believe it? Listen, you have to know you can't partner up with grace and be saved. You can't do it. Grace must be absolutely free, or it isn't grace at all. It's just that simple. And then another Puritan, Thomas Manton, Tommy Manton, because we're imagining them today and not back in the Puritan times, he might lean over from a neighboring table and say, listen, God is excellent all by himself. He doesn't need you to be all that. He doesn't need anything that you can bring. He just needs you to come empty and in need of his grace. He doesn't need your help because he creates the best things out of nothing. And that's what this is all about. Grace works most freely when it works upon nothing. It's totally shocking to our human sensibilities because by nature, we think we have to partner up with God in some way for our salvation. It was clearly shocking to Paul, this eminent Pharisee who said in Philippians 3, 4 and following, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And that's a polite Bible word. I'm not allowed to say that word in the pulpit. He would have said it at Molly's. He said, I count it all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. That's how astonished Paul is at the gospel. Grace should be shocking to us. No one was more shocked than was Paul. This Pharisee who kept the law every jot and tittle, yet he was bowled over by grace. Well, this takes us to a final point. We've seen Paul's mission. It's of divine origin. We've seen Paul's message. The content is the gospel. Christ and his grace through and through. One last point then from verses 6 to 9, and this is where it should come a little bit close to home. Look there with me. In verses 6 to 9, we see Paul's alarm. This is where Paul begins to pull out all the stops, and he begins the main point of his letter in earnest. Verses 6 and following, I am astonished, I'm shocked, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we did preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul uses a few different words in Galatians to describe what he's feeling about them. I think taking a moment to look at that will help us understand his heart, because here we really see the concern of Paul's heart, the concern of his heart for the Galatians. Here in 1.9, where he says, I'm astonished, that's a good way to put what the word means. Uh, the Welsh preacher, Hyle Jones, he, he breaks out the thesaurus here. I'm astonished, I'm amazed, I'm staggered, I'm stupefied, I'm shocked. All of those things are implied Depending on the context, this word can either mean, I can't believe what I'm seeing, that's amazing. Or it can mean, I can't believe what I'm seeing. That's what Paul is seeing here. Maybe today we would say, I literally just can't even. What are you even doing? That's what Paul's saying. Paul is shocked. Why on earth, why on earth would you abandon God's grace? Why would you do it? What in the world are you thinking? That's Paul's frame of mind. In chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. He's shocked. He's afraid that all of his efforts, he was beaten how many times to take the gospel to the Gentiles? He's afraid it may have all been for nothing because they have left the gospel. In chapter 4, verse 20, he's perplexed, dumbfounded, confused. He says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I'm perplexed about you. Remember, knowing who Paul was and where he came from, what he was called to, it helps us understand why he is so just confused and where he's going with all of this. Remember, God's grace alone, by faith alone, knocked Paul off of his high horse of legalism, of Phariseeism, and it blinded him, literally, and then the scales fell from his eyes, the eyes in his head and the eyes in his heart, and he saw Jesus, and then he threw it all away to follow this beautiful Savior who gives salvation not by works but by grace who saves even the chief of sinners. That's what Paul calls himself. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That anyone would exchange God's free grace through faith for anything else shocks Paul. It perplexes Paul. It makes him fear for their souls and the fruitfulness of his ministry. I resonate with Paul, both personally and as a pastor. Personally, I fear that somehow, maybe even without being aware of it, I might exchange the free grace of God through faith in Christ for a gospel and relationship with God. Gospel and being a good dad. Gospel and being a gentle husband. Gospel and being a faithful pastor. 
gospel and being a person who has all my ducks in a row. I saw an internet meme this week that says, my ducks are absolutely not in a row. I don't even know where some of them are, and I think one of them is a pigeon. (laughs) That's, if we're honest with ourselves, where we're at. Gospel and having all my ducks in a row is never going to work out. That's sort of Paul's point in this letter. You will be condemned if that becomes your gospel. But all joking aside, I say this with the utmost concern as your pastor. I fear for any of you who might exchange the gospel of God's free grace by faith in Christ for a gospel and message, especially if I had something to do with it. Gospel and only reading the approved theology books. Gospel and only making the right decision about who to marry or how to parent your children. Gospel and casting the right vote in the election booth in election year. Gospel and any number of things which we're constantly tempted to add to the gospel. We're constantly tempted to add to the gospel. As if the gospel is great and all, so far as it goes, but when it really comes to it, what really carries us over the line is the and that we add to the gospel. Our actions, the additions that we make, the obedience that we perform. In the case of the Galatians, it was the gospel and the law. The gospel and the law. Belief in the gospel and adherence to the law to be made right with God. To quote Spurgeon, they were mingle-mangling the law and gospel. Spurgeon says, to form a mingle-mangle of law and gospel is to teach that which is neither law nor gospel, but the opposite of both. And we're going to unpack what that means as we go through the book of Galatians, how to keep the law and the gospel in their right lanes where God intends them to be and to operate. But gospel and law is the gospel and that these believers were being swayed by to their ruin. It's a dead end with no redemption. That's where Paul will be headed with this. What's encouraging, though, is this. Paul uses stronger words for the false teachers who are troubling the Galatian churches than he does for those who are being led astray. Picking up again in verse 6. Look there with me in verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we proclaim to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Accursed, to be accursed. Anathema, that's the word. This derives from harem in the Old Testament. Not harem as in many wives. Harem, warfare. This, this, uh, in the conquest of Canaan, the word used to describe the total annihilation that was called for used in the, in, the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the word anathema. Anathema. Think the slaughter of the Amalekites. Leave no stone unturned, no one living, no one can tell the tale. Total and utter destruction. Anathema. Heron. This last day principle of eternal judgment breaking into the present as a picture of what's to come. God's final day judgment breaking forward into human history. It means then, as Paul says, let them be anathema, that those who preach a gospel and message should be regarded as those who are damned to hell, who are eternally, utterly, totally condemned forever. And Paul says, if I 
if I preach a gospel other than the one that we already preach to you, a different gospel, a false gospel, then that's how you should regard me. If an angel from heaven preaches a gospel like that to you, anathema, anathema. That's the force of this. That's the weight of this. It's terrifying for those who proclaim the gospel. But it's encouraging that God holds out hope in this. And we think maybe Paul's being too strong in his words. He's really just following Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 6, whoever calls one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and I think leading a believer in Jesus to think that something other than Jesus is more valuable and needed and necessary applies. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's how serious this is. And Paul is just on the on-ramp. He's just on the on-ramp. There will be no saved rounds. He is going to pull out all the stops as he uh, tells us how serious it is to abandon the message of the gospel of grace, the mere gospel, and far more so just how serious it is when someone preaches the false message of gospel and. God have mercy on preachers. Pray for your pastor, but pray for everyone here to stay true to the mere gospel message that Paul is proclaiming in Galatians. But here's what's encouraging. Back up for a minute to chapter 1, verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. What do you see in Galatians 2? Who does Paul say he's writing to? To the churches of Galatia. To the churches of Galatia. To the ecclesia, to the called out ones. See, all is not lost. All is not lost. Paul will bring the full force of his apostolic authority and the full content the good news of the message of grace, this mere gospel. He's going to bring it to bear on the doubts and confusion and wandering of the church, of God's beloved called out ones. There's still hope for them. He's calling them back for their rescue, to give them grace, calling, calling them back to the good news that they first heard and received. And he's going to use everything he can to throw at the false gospel, to call them back and rescue them. So let me ask you in closing, with that encouraging note that even if we begin to wander, God is pursuing us and calling us back to the gospel. Is there an and in your understanding of the gospel? Maybe you'll have to do some inventory and think about that. Is there an and in your understanding of the gospel? Lose the and. Lose the and and look only to Jesus. The and will destroy your assurance and it will derail your faith in Christ. Look to Jesus. Only Jesus. Run to Jesus alone by faith. Run back to him if you've gospel-anded yourself away from him and get back to the mere gospel. When you do that, you'll hear him say, God will say to you, I give you my grace and peace. And my son Jesus, he gives you his grace and peace. After all, he gave himself to deliver you from your sins and from this present evil age according to my eternal will for my glory and for your eternal good. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, give us the grace and peace of the mere gospel of grace by faith in Jesus. Free us from all of the ands that lead us away from you and help us to always and only cling to Jesus for our salvation. In the precious name of the one who gave himself for our sins, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.